Hello and welcome to Returning to Base, a Mech Warrior Living Legends podcast. Our topic today is on pub games, uh, uh, preferred tactics, and things like that. And our guests are all avid players of this game. Our guests today are Direwolf. Hello. Down for the Brown. Hey, what's good, everyone? Perseus. Hello. And Zessel. Hello. All right. Well, uh, we've already introduced Direwolf in the past. Uh, Direwolf, mind giving another little introduction? Hi, I'm CJF Direwolf 2K. I played the game a lot. I run events on weekends, uh, terrain control and single life stuff. And yeah, I like Shadowcats, Thor's beat. And down for the brown? Hey, what's good, y'all? I've been playing the game for about uh, four months now. Oh, and by the way, I'm CJF, down for the Brown 35. Or, you know, down for works, too, because I know that's a mouthful. And um, I really like Thor's, too. Uh, that's about it. And Perseus? Hi, my name is Perseus. I've been playing Living Legends for about two years now. I greatly enjoy it. It's probably one of my favorite games to play when I can. And unfortunately, none of my other friends like playing it as much as I do. And Zessel. I'm Zessel. I have been playing MechWarrior Living Legends for nearly 10 years now. Um, I have recently joined Clan Seafox because I, I was pretty good friends with most of them to begin with anyways for a long time. And I am your host, Warlord Kentax. So, on the topic of pub games, uh, what are pub games? I mean, are they? How do they differ from, say, like uh, organized matches? I think it's just more of like a toss-up, like as far as your team composition goes and how the game's going to turn out. I mean, I just think that's the biggest difference. You know, they vary so much. So that's probably what I'd say. It's important to remember that they are the majority of all Living Legends gameplay. Like, 99% of games are just pub games of random people. Yeah, just terrain control where people pick assets they like and may or may not pay attention to the objectives. That's basically it. Yeah, but I mean, that being said, I think the um, probably some of the funniest and coolest things I've seen in this game have been in pub games, though, you know, from people doing crazy stuff all the time. So I will say that, though, you know, for pub games. The better you get at this game, the more willing you are to goof around and do nonsense once you've become familiar with the basics. So I've noticed that um, there's sort of like a whole lot of unwritten rules, almost, to how pub games are conducted. Um, if you're aware of any of those, uh, enlighten us. <laughs> Don't play BA or Arrow unless you're really good at them. Except in specific situations. Yeah. That is one. For the most part, though, it's like, I think people are free to play pubs however they like. There are, there are going to be people who disagree with me, but for the most part, just 
people buy whatever assets they like and do whatever it is that they feel most comfortable with. Or they can use the or because also there's no like organizational stakes, you can just experiment. Yeah, I think I'd be inclined to agree with Direwolf. I think um at the end of the day <clears throat> excuse me if it's not a bit a little hoarse, but um at the end of the day, I think it's more important to, you know, have fun in the game than to, like, try to play extra study all the time. I mean, if you really want to play Arrow, go for it. But I think, you know, it's not the worst idea, though, at the same time. If your team's down, like, 200 tickets, might be good, and you're, like, 0, negative 10, might be a good idea to, like, try and back up or something. But, you know, I don't know. I, uh, Pope games are definitely the most casual of environments. Well, maybe, maybe only, like, testing servers are more casual, I suppose. But, um, yeah, like others have said, it's where people tend to just do whatever they want to do. And there, I, I, I do find myself wishing sometimes that, that people had a little bit more awareness of, uh, you know, what they could be doing that wouldn't be detrimental to their team. You know, like if, you know, if like like he said, if if someone's crashed ten aerospace, you know, you know, you got to realize, oh, this this ain't working. Yeah, that's for sure. I know those occasionally. Uh, I'll have like a minus one and six <laughs> game, but have actually helped. Um, it, but you're right. A lot of times when you've got really bad scores like that, it's a very good indicator that something's not going right. Uh, it. I know that like there's a steep learning curve, but that doesn't mean necessarily <laughs> that uh, 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 your performance should be that bad. Uh, there are ways to um, really help out your team a lot without causing them huge um, detriment. For example, you can um, take a Raven or an Owens or maybe uh, later in the game, um, or, uh, or also earlier in the game you can do... Um, uh, Hephaestus, uh, things that provide radar for your allies or um, uh, things that have guardian electronic countermeasures so that you're less likely to get shot up. Just chat is super helpful. If you goss someone in the side torso, just call it out. Yep, that's probably the single most important thing. Just because there, there isn't an in-game voice chat, if you just kind of are constantly screaming in team chat, like, here's someone who's hurt, like, Here's this component that you should shoot at, or here's somebody who's really weak. If you see a Hephaestus, go kill it. Like, oh yeah, especially if, you, if there's yeah. a friendly air uh, flying around, uh, it can be so helpful to point out some target that they can actually go hunt down. Yeah, exactly. And the other way around too. I think uh, friendly air can also, you know, tell you where other people are. Like they're excellent scouts. I know with the um, yeah the Hephaestuses and Ravens. The shared radar, the angel electronic countermeasures, all those sorts of different things can really help your team out a lot when you haven't yet developed the um, uh, the fine-tuned skills in the game. Uh, also, the Hephaestus and Raven, one of the and things like that, and the Owens. What's really important about them is that they don't cost very many tickets. So when they explode your team only loses a few tickets. Whereas if you're buying those more expensive assets and dying a lot in them, like you're you know, pulling Bushwhackers or Lokis or, or uh, even bigger things, uh, those are going to lose 
lose it for your team pretty quick if you're just dying all over and over again, especially with aircraft. This is one of my favorite things about Living Legends. The difference in ticket price for assets is something very unique over like any other first-person shooter. And, and in those games, if you're dying a lot as a new player, you'll really be hurting the team. But here, if you die 10 times in harassers, it's, you still haven't caused as much harm as one like higher skilled player accidentally throwing away their Fafnir. Yeah, the one the one thing I have to say to that though is that I see some players like they'll just kind of crush on that. They'll just kind of assume, well, you know, I'm not really throwing any tickets, so it's not really a problem. And I mean, I, like if you if you throw away like ten harassers, yeah, like it's not as big of a deal as like one person stupidly throwing away Madcat. But at the same time, like you're also kind of giving up a lot of your chance to make an impact on the game. Uh, like they're like if, if you're not being careful with like with your aggression, with your low ticket assets, you're not really making a huge impact. I'd it's a lot more influential, I think, just to I have one player back cap in ten harassers and die every time than one more mad cat. That probably swings more pub games than anything else is just repeated back capping. Yeah. But you have to make sure that you're actually able to do so and not die along the way, or that you're actually able to have something like that somebody can't just show up and then instantly be able to eat like a harasser. Like Actually, there's a there's a player named Django who's a really like solid player in one v ones, but he's kind of like predictable in his map presence. So you kind of know that whenever he's in the game, he's going to show up at, at like your back factory and either solitaire prime or you act twenty Ryokin. And because it's like if, if it's like in the early enough in the game where you know he still has a solitaire, like I'll sometimes just see it's like oh we're losing a factory or like a side cap somewhere, and I just know it's going to be Django and his solitaire. So even if I'm in like some kind of mediocre medium or whatever, I know that I can show up and instantly. Like solve the problem. I can probably kill him or drive him off and retake the point, which is like a different sort of thing. Where if it's like, oh, I don't know who's going to take this point, and they may be in a heavy, which might be able to instantly kill me. Like, it, there's a lot more ambiguity. Learn, learning how to good. read the room, per se, in a in a pub game is is very important. You know, uh, it's it's part of I, I I suppose why so many people Spurf use other names other than their typical name they've given themselves Howard. is <laughs> is because you know you you know if if I you know like Direwolf said DJ bless his heart he's a great player but he is very predictable so you know if I see DJ on the other team I already know what he's going to be doing nine times out of ten and I can prepare for that yeah also, even if you don't know the player, like, like if you just see that somebody does something once or twice, then you generally are prepared for when they do it again. Yeah, oh, and, um, <clears throat> excuse me, um, I'd like to mention this about Angel ECM that um, I don't know about y'all, but for the first week that I was playing, I, I never actually realized that it makes you a target. So that's kind of a little scary for like new players, too. Yeah, you're uh, certainly bright on the enemy radar, as though you had no kind of uh, electronic countermeasures at all. Embarrassed about how many times when I was learning the game, I didn't, I didn't really understand what AECM properly did. So I'd be like, "Oh, there's one player over there. I can go, I can go attack them," and then I, I just walk into the entire enemy team. I'm like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ACM is absurdly good in pub games because, like, well, okay, it requires a person who is using ACM or the team to like be aware of what it does. 
but also because like the other team doesn't have voice chat and can't instantly tell you that, oh my god, like this blip on the radar is like 10 people at once. Uh, occasionally we'll just have people get picked off because they aren't really aware. Like they just don't know that like, oh, three other groups of my like three other teammates like got picked off by the same group. It's not just one person. That sort of like a communication deficit really makes ACM strong. Our topics so far have been pretty close to the uh, preferred tactic stuff. So I think um what do you all normally do when you're on, say, a small map? I usually go for something like heavily armored. Uh, when it's like a smaller map, you don't have to go as far. Like, you don't have to rely too much on having like fast assets uh, with high abilities, so you can constantly put pressure on remote places. You just want to be able to put as much firepower and as much armor in any given place. Uh, so for me, like I tend to skew towards tanks towards like heavier assets. I suppose one of our premier uh, small maps would be uh, what Thunder Rift. So like on Thunder Rift, uh, you, you tend to prefer those things, or is Thunder Rift a little different? I always treat T-Rift a little bit differently because of how diverse the terrain is. Tanks are really, really, really good there. But personally, I'm also like a really big fan of jump jets in pretty much every situation. Uh, but because there's so much verticality there, I like to have like probably just summoners, uh, Mark IIs if I can afford them, Anything that like is able to attack from unusual directions, especially with like the newest versions of T Rift, where you gain a lot by setting up crossfires around mid. But still, I try to tend towards armor. I see a lot more uh, of the assault tanks on that map than I do on other maps. I don't really think of maps in terms of like size of small versus big, but I try to look at the situation. Where uh, if like a chunk of the map where the people are fighting, do I think that there is like a lot of cover there or very little? Because cover is infinite armor, and that is like my biggest like thought about what asset to take next. Do I need an asset with a lot of armor to like move between cover or like speed to just use the infinite cover uh, or the infinite armor of cover, and instead of needing like actual armor on my assets? Well, it's infinite armor for you, but it's not necessarily infinite armor for the objectives or for the rest of your team. Uh -huh. So for yeah, so it's it's kind of one of these things where it's like, yeah, if if you're trying to be evasive, like if your game plan is to like run around and put up set up crossfires, poke flanking assets, like on T-Rift, for example, I think like you can really make a whole like you can be oppressive with an asset that's just constantly putting down fire on flankers, people who are trying to hide behind cover. Like that's that's one way to play. But for others where it's like, okay, you're on TC Forsaken or something, where there's tons of cover everywhere, but there's only one place where anyone on the map is going to be at a given time, and everybody's going to be focusing on that one place. You want to have like the most armor you can possibly have, so that way like you can just stay alive long enough and keep holding the point long enough and keep draining tickets until the rest of your team comes back from whatever their cycle is, from whatever repair cycle they're on. So or minimize tickets. Do the, like that. Does the whole repair cycle thing occur more frequently on smaller maps? Than um, than larger maps. Um, yes and yes and no because you know give you know Thunder Rift the the given example. I mean, yeah, you can you can retreat back to the forward repairs relatively quickly, but then again, so can your enemy, and unless you've got someone perhaps denying their repair gantry, but that, you know, that kind of coordination typically isn't present in a pub game. Um, so like, like Direwolf, um, heavy armor and, and the durability 
to stay put and hold the base for as long as possible is very desirable. I just prefer to get up into the point. I've said many times in the Discord that the size of a capstone is usually about 20 to 40 meters. Therefore, you do not need any weapons with a range longer than 20 to 40 meters. Yeah, on, on capstones with like small cover anyway. For some, it's like some, some maps, like, uh, like for example, like Warzone, which is definitely not small, uh, you're kind of going to be expecting that like, there, there's going to be somebody watching the capstone with potentially much longer range. And sometimes you don't always have cover to protect yourself, so it's helpful to have something to force trades. Like you don't want to you don't be actively trading with those people, but you don't want to let them have it for free, have their damage for free anyway. I was just thinking again about that, uh, you know, um, terrain providing armor for you. Uh, reminds me of bogs. Yeah, bogs is funny because they're they're really much. It very much is about kind of like getting between cover a lot of the time, like. Teams like to sit behind certain places nearish to their base um, and just like use terrain for cover and they'll like try and snipe people who are moving around the map. Though occasionally that loses them games because Boggs requires you to be like, it requires you to have armor in many different parts of the map, which is one of the reasons I like it so much. It's very, very mobile. Yeah, but I feel like um, even then there's like, there's small maps and then there's small maps, you know, there's like Foundry Rift and then there's like really small maps like Forsaken and stuff. And even beyond that, I just think like the maps in this game vary so much as far as like visibility goes, like weather goes and stuff. It's kind of hard to pin down one thing to do on like any given size of map, I think. Yeah, I think when size comes into play, it's mostly about like objectives. It's like really, I think it's less like size and more like objective distribution. If like all the objectives are within a small part of the map, like you don't really need to be super fast to be able to project force to all those places. But if it's something like Death Valley or Valley Forge or something where you might have to spend several minutes going between like certain important parts of the map, then like it, you really gain a huge premium from having things like Black Lanterns or Huttercraft. I remember in old TC Mirage uh, way back when that the map was much larger, but the play area wasn't much larger than it is today. And so um, having super high speed assets to back cap and stuff was a viable strategy, but it wasn't really necessary. And um, and so, yeah, that, that's one of the cases of where you have a really big map, but the objectives are close together, or close enough together, that it doesn't, it doesn't really alter the flow of play substantially enough to make you change tactics. Yeah, that's pretty much it. So Area then, of play is like, I would just consider like areas around objectives. So then when you have like really large maps like uh, what Enceladus and um, uh, Phlegaton uh, Warzone um, what ends up uh, what do you end up having to do for those maps uh, tactics wise? Uh, on big maps yep. mobility wins. Um, yep. my, my favorite example to cite for this is um, TC Harvest. Um, I, I feel T, TC Harvest, as long as, you can, uh, as long as you can control your enemy and keep them where you want them, you'll win. You know, uh, TC Harvest has the two forward back factories in the middle of the map, north and south of each other. So typically the battle lines are, there will be a force meeting, there will be opposing forces meeting in the middle of the map, and then typically there will be 
skirmishes for the side bases. And, uh, and in, in my experience, it's generally whoever can keep the other team bottled up in middle better and control the side bases, that's the team that wins. And you, you have to maintain your mobility, you have to stay fast in order to do that. I think that's also, like I, with Harvest, I think it's also partially a function of there just being an even number of cap zones, where, because like sometimes you can win like a skirmish on one of the side caps and you can keep it for a while. But if the other team has like, I mean, if they just have at least one other cap zone or they had a, a slight ticket lead or they're able to get some kills elsewhere, like you're still not going to make too much of a difference. The, the side caps aren't all too far from the factories, so it's not super hard for a, for a defending team to reclaim it. It's just really, really hard to swing momentum there. Uh, like, and, that, and that's just like, if you, if you had like a fifth cap, like in the middle or something, like the Team Rift had like a really similar game flow, I think, where it's just like you have both teams have like their factories, which are always hard to take, and they have some side objectives, which are really close and really defensible to the factories. It's just a matter of like either who can make some massive play and like totally wipe the enemy team or take their back factory or something like that. It's less a function of size, I think, but mobility is really important just for force projection. I the thing that always annoys me about the big maps is that they always have such high flight ceilings. Is I always just end up choosing more anti-air capable mechs to our assets, really just to to just stop enemy bombers from killing so many of the newer players on my team, or just like hold them off a little bit. I and unfortunately there aren't really like. This game does not actually have an asset that has very high mobility and very high AA at the same time that is not another plane. And that's sort of like the role of planes, but I'm terrible at playing planes. So like on Harvest, I'll often be in one of the main factories killing, killing enemy arrow as they come in to bomb the rep bay. Yeah, and on like bigger maps too, um, I think mobility also helps you sort of dodge like long-range fire, like Typically, if there's like a massive ticket lead, like people buy like very powerful long range assets, you know, like the um, like the ERATM Mars and stuff like that. So mobility can really help you get around those too, because otherwise they just like lock parts of the map down, you know. For sure, there's there's kind of like two range brackets. There's the 900 meter ER PPC ER large laser Gauss rifle range, and then there's everything above that, which is like you know your your ER ATMs, your Ultra AC2s. Uh, your hags. HVAC, yeah, hags and H HVACs, and those are like those come into play on the super long range maps in a way that you don't actually see them with when you can just use a Gauss rifle to poke anything. So yeah, large maps, aerospace uh, uh, do have an advantage at picking off lone targets since cover is usually harder to find in larger maps. Not necessarily, but it's frequently the case. I think it's less about cover and more about force projection. Again, like ASF are the most mobile assets in the game, full stop. So if you want to like get a pick somewhere, like the fat it's being the fastest assets that can just kind of drop out of the sky and kill something and it's low on health or whatever, or you know, it's taking a long rep cycle to go back uh, to a base or whatever, like an aerospace fighter is just gonna have an advantage. And also uh, tangent is that some smaller aerospace have really easy times capping points. So like a sparrowhawk on a really huge map. Or on just a large one where the area of play is like kind of limited, like stone rows, where a lot of the time you're not going to pay attention to outline caps. Like a Sparrowhawk can be super annoying because it'll be able to cap anything faster than a ground asset. Yeah, I, I can capture um, other bases uh, or bases with uh, larger planes, but 
it starts getting into the circumstance where the likelihood of my plane either being destroyed on the ground by enemies, because it's so easy to take out a plane once it's landed, or um, crashing as I try to take off, or crashing as I'm trying to land due to random debris, since it's not there's no clear runway, um, that it's just not really worth it to do with the bigger planes unless you're sort of, unless you're stuck in a bigger plane and you just really need to cap a certain base and you already know that it's safe. Yep. Aer- aerospace having fantastic radar really helps with that. But yeah, usually it's a lot safer to use smaller smaller ones. Do have to watch out for battle armor though. <laughs> they they don't show up on aer- aerospace radar. True. And flamers do like BA flamer and BA heavy heavy yeah, heavy laser both do absurd amounts of damage to arrow for whatever reason. Yeah. But it's not common that like if like, you're ever getting an outline cap, it's pretty rare that someone will spawn a BA specifically to counter you. Yeah, they usually either don't have the time, there's not a player, or uh, that's dead, or th- there's nobody who, uh, uh, the person who is currently dead and respawning doesn't, isn't the kind of person that has the wherewithal to actually try to do that. Yeah, yeah, I so, just wouldn't know that it's a plane capping that point. Yeah. yeah. In, in my experience, typically the only time you'll get a... Uh, a battle armor spawn to counter your cap on like say a death valley side base is if perhaps you had already dueled them there previously and they think that respawning they can kill you as a battle armor yeah i've done that which is quite possible i did that once on um what's the name of that uh ring of fire I don't remember who I was playing against, but I really frustrated them because uh, I was in a de- demolisher, almost took them out, respawned as a battle armor, died, respawned as a battle armor, died, and respawned as a battle armor again because it was uh, really hard for him to shoot at my battle armor uh, while standing in the cap zone because it's so small on that map. And so he would have to wander outside of the cap zone to fight me. And if, if he got back in the cap zone, I would just jump on top of him. So it was a... Very long process, and I eventually destroyed him, and he was very angry, and I can understand why. Dust Bowl has the same kind of problem, where you, BA can uh, contest from behind cover, and they spawn really close to the cap zone. Yeah, definitely. If I ever do that, like spawn as a battle armor somewhere, you know, to hold a cap, I'll usually just hide, like, you know, hopefully to hold up, you know, the enemies there long enough that my team can show up and help me out. Yep. Or just run away and then cap when they leave. Oh yeah, that too. You can barely see me on uh, on radar anyway. And so this, there's a tactic that I like to use with battle armor that um, I'll do it whether it's a big map or a small map, and it, I think it's actually more effective on bigger maps. Uh, is what you do is you build a an APC and then you place it near one of your forward build uh, forward spawns. Uh, for example, Frostbite, what I'll do is I'll build an APC and then I'll hide it in the mountains behind the forward uh, forward spawn. And that way, uh, if they capture our own forward spawn, then I can respawn at the APC and then just jump down from the mountain into that base. APCs are so strong. I see them on Death Valley, I think, the most... Yeah, they're helpful mostly for... I think like in Death, in Death Valley, it's mostly for the ammunition because mid has repairs, and having ammo is there as well there for the most valuable point in the map is really, really helpful for sieges. Yeah, hi- hiding hiding APCs near forward spawns is a, is a very 
very valid, very effective tactic. Um, I've, I, I do it occasionally myself, and I occasionally get frustrated. Like if it's a uh, if it's a forward spawn that has like an eight bay hanger, I'll, I'll just park it in one of the back ones, and then the I, I I get frustrated sometimes. And when I I come back and someone got in it and moved it or something, I'm <laughs> like, come on, guys. It's the best to do to the enemy's base on Oasis if you cap it or if you like back cap the Oasis factory. Immediately get an APC and drive into one of the other eight hangar bays. They'll never find it. Unfortunately, uh, the the one problem with that is that BA can see everything. BA radar can see almost everything, so occasionally they can see the APC. Yeah, and things with Bloodhound probe too can occasionally see them. Uh, just like a, a side note, though, a lot of the stuff we've been discussing for the last few minutes are like kind of niche tactics, like yeah. hiding APCs and like arrow capping, are things that are very much like. I think like the main thing has, has that has to be considered is like opportunity cost. It's like okay, I could be spending you know a few minutes hiding the APC, or I could you know spend a bunch of time learning how to like learning how to land ASF at bases for arrow capping, and then like buying an aerospace for arrow capping. But it's like some it's like the only time this will really pay off is if okay you're, you're far enough in the lead where you can afford to screw up and lose it, or where you won't be doing more elsewhere. Like you don't have enough money to buy an asset that would make a serious difference, like in a major engagement somewhere, or you can't back cap a a different place because like it's too heavily defended, whatever. You like, joined late. Yeah. It's always like the, the thing that I always like try to use to determine like what I'm gonna do during a pub game is like how much power do I have to do something? Like how confident am I ability to change the course of a fight or to back cap an important point and like change the ticket flow on the map. Uh, like that then usually determines like whether I'm gonna I'm gonna back cap or I'm gonna go buy something fighty and then try and help uh, the rest of my team like kill stuff. The one sort of uh, like counter to that, though, would be like uh, if you're uh, providing a good distraction. <laughs> yeah, but it's. I think the distractions are most helpful if you're like close enough in tickets, or you're ahead in tickets, where like the distraction is going to be making it harder for a team that's already down on map control or economy to win it back. But like if you're losing, you have to be really confident in your ability that like your distraction will actually have payoff. Like other people on your team are going to be able to capitalize. Uh, like that's actually that's like a thing in my playstyle that's evolved over the last few years, where it's like I used to always back cap, like no matter what. If I had, if we were down on tickets, I would always just like just buy the fastest asset I could and try and back cap. Uh, or even if like I couldn't cap the point, I would like try and be dealing uh, like tempo damage is a term that I learned relatively recently thanks to Lico and General Batuta, I think. But yeah, later on I kind of realized that like sometimes the other team can respond quickly enough that like my distractions don't really matter, that they don't really change. Uh, the ultimate like calculus of the match. Like we're still losing fights too much, and it would be more productive if I was contributing armor and gun somewhere else. Yeah, I know. With um, when I do like an APC hide an APC like on uh, Dune, for example, uh, there's relatively good hiding locations for both um, forward bases, uh, but it's not usually worth it for me to spawn at my APC that I hid unless the enemy has taken both of the forward bases because if they only have one of the forward bases and it's the one my APC is next to, then that's where their entire team is going to be spawning. And so sure, maybe I'm a little bit of a distraction by go, jumping in there with a the battle armor, but it's not really, it's not going to prevent, it's not, their team's not going to spread out. They're going to stay there and wait until they kill me and then go out in mass anyway. So uh, yeah, exactly. And, not, and further, furthermore, you, you risk 
giving yourself away. Yeah. You know, they're they're gonna they're gonna, oh, where did this random battle armor come from? He must have an APC somewhere. Yeah, so I usually reserve it until both of uh, my team is completely down on caps. Which brings us to another part of the topic. Um, what do you do when you're behind on caps? Uh, feeling behind on caps, it's always rough about questioning what to do because the best options usually require good teamwork. But if you had good teamwork, you probably wouldn't be far behind on caps anyway. Yeah. So it really depends on the map layout. Like sometimes, like outlying caps are really important relative to the rest of like the points. Say you're on like Death Valley, or actually, I think a better example is like Dust Bowl or something, where every outlying cap is worth a ton. Uh, yeah, Dust Bowl and Ivory Tower are probably good examples. Where like even though people won't always be fighting at certain places, like they're still worth a ton of caps cap points, or rather, they they have like high ticket multipliers. So you just need to make sure that you're able to like hold those places when people are focused elsewhere. And then on certain other maps, like Mirage, where the center is worth so much more than everything else, you probably want to focus on just holding that point. So that way, like you can give, because that's where you need most of your team anyway. So that way, at least, at least one other person on your team, if not you, can try and put pressure on outlying caps. I mean, it also sort of depends on like how big the ticket gap is. You know, if it's like something insane, I think, you know, regardless of like how much the capture weight, you might not want to get into like a, like a, that's spell with the enemy because, you know, odds are they've been fed into like very big assets and you kind of want them to like break up more. Whereas like where there's like a smaller, you know, ticket gap, you probably want to like, then that's when you probably want to get into like more fights because it's going to be like relatively equal. Yeah. Yeah. Much of the game revolves around like death falling and counter death falling where if the enemy, way. yes, uh, if the enemy team has death balls where you just have like, like almost the entire team all together in this dense group that just instantly kills any single player. You want to backcap them because you know that you actually can backcap them because everyone's in one spot. But yeah. if they are all spread out and they're responding to your backcaps too quickly, then you you need to get your team together and deathball and crush them individually. But it's very difficult to both recognize when you need to switch between these two different kinds of team layouts and to be able to coordinate your team to actually respond quickly enough to like execute those kinds of plans. Yeah. In pubs, it's always easier just to tell people, like, I'll go to one place, like, everybody buy something fat and then go to mid, like, in Mirage or whatever. Like, that's a, it's a simpler way to run things. But... It's always like in pubs, whenever you run against teams that actually have a bunch of competent players who are running on back, like running between different points and like have a good back line, we're able to make picks uh, when people are on rep cycles, then it's then it gets really hard. And the thing, like for me, uh, I always go into just like trying to get the biggest assets possible so that way I can just hold the center point as much as possible, make all their players pay attention to me. So that way, hopefully, it opens up a spot that somebody else in the team can take advantage of in their back lines, get a back cap, something like that. Yeah, like like they've said, sometimes sometimes a team is just they're just on point enough to where they're gonna counter you if you're just trying to back cap. You know, if you late join and you're just trying to back cap in a solitaire or something, sometimes you're just gonna you're just gonna get shut down. They're just gonna react very quickly. And um uh, I, Oasis is a, is a fun demonstration of this, like like what Direwolf was saying, where you just 
you just try to put as much stuff on the middle as possible to make them commit to you. But Oasis is especially fun because given the nature of the, the buildings and the terrain around it, you can put something relatively small on it and have it virtually impossible to hit unless they actually come in and get within 100 meters of you. Yeah, they're like, Oasis is pretty oppressive to deal with if the other team isn't able to like massive enough people to like attack whatever's sitting there in significant numbers. I think Blood Raven and Buff Skeleton, like Hover Chavs, who just take really fast, really small assets that are hard to kill and can hide behind structures in mid, are probably like always the players I, I least want to fight against on Oasis. Uh, I know that feeling so much. When you yeah. see Blood Raven join the enemy team, you're like, no. Yeah, because they're just gonna sit, like if they have the point, they're just going to sit there, and the rest of their team can sit relatively comfortably, like using cover and trying to hit anybody else who's trading with them. Uh, and then if you, even if you are like, oh, okay, I'm gonna be the one who's gonna run into mid, like I'm gonna have the spine to run through the hail of enemy fire. You still have to deal with hovercraft in the middle, and hope that you know that you can actually hold it and get back to it, hold it, uh, not get picked apart by everybody who's watching it. Ideally, get get back to base and not die. Or at least hold it long enough uh, before they come back that you make a positive ticket influence or ticket trade, whatever. If if you are lucky, you know if if you join a if you late join a team or if you've just been on it from the beginning, one thing you can kind of luck out on, like what what like what you're saying is if if they don't have the Blood Raven or the Buff Skeleton who will just sit there and taunt you with their presence, you you can get lucky sometimes if the enemy team gets complacent in their lead. You know, they 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 work up a 200-ticket lead, and then they think, okay, we got this. Uh, all right, I'm just going to roll out my alarms or whatever, and I'm just going to sit next to my Oasis Delta 3 base and just, you know, just mouse-click one. You know, that that is something that happens, and it is something that can be punished. Yes. Uh, assault buys are always like my favorite thing to see for the enemy team on Oasis uh, because it always means that okay I can run into mid with like a medium I can tank whatever they hit me throw at me for a few seconds probably long enough for me to take the point and then maybe like if they're still like kind of tied down trying to trade on mid you know like kill my one relatively weak asset here or you know trading with the rest of my team then I can maybe also get a back back cap on their factory because they can't build assaults there and they can't repair them it becomes like a, a less valuable place or at least it's less it's less defended. A good question regarding like when like how do you respond when you're behind caps is like when do you decide to try and bank or like a slingshot either yourself or another player to get a major asset that can make a major play? I'm always reluctant to do that uh, for both myself and for other teammates because like in in pubs it's just hard to coordinate and that means it's probably a lot easier for someone to make a mistake like they can't maybe they won't tell you exactly where they're positioning or you know maybe they'll like somebody on the other team will catch them out, and then suddenly, oh no, you lose like your your daishi or whatever that you gave all your money to, or you or you lose your daishi because you did something silly. And then the the other problem is that you may give someone all the money in the world, and then they get a really nice asset and they stay in it for a while, but then they don't want to die and throw it away stupidly. So then they don't do that much like in terms of like your team's map impact. I prefer just like keeping like staying as fast as possible. Uh, Still like taking like fast seventy-five ton heavies, doing as much damage as possible, uh, capturing as many objectives as possible, even if it means I die. I yeah, just... definitely. I mean, um, 
think, you know, like taking like the biggest test that you always, you can, like no matter what is typically a bad idea, I think too. And, um, you know, again, like a big ticket gap because, you know, odds are that your team's not going to be coordinated, coordinated enough to like allow you to make good use of that asset in question. So I think like, like heavies will typically strike a better balance, especially in games when you're like behind. I was particularly thinking of the early Mad Cat. A, uh, a truly terrible sight is when your whole team is in lights and someone in the enemy team has brought out a Mad Cat. Oh boy. But also special. Yes. <laughs> I think I think Zessel, you might down. want to tell that story. Oh boy. Um, what are you guys talking about? Is that the one where all the ravens had to kill the Mad Cat together? Correct. Yes, and it worked. There is, there is a, a famous... Living Legends video created by our beloved Saber 15. Many years ago, uh, sea build trading was unlimited. You know, it, as soon as the game starts, as soon as you load in, I could give Direwolf all 43 or 49,000 of my starting sea builds because I think it was 49,000 still back then. So, so people spawning into, uh, heavy assets like mad cats very early on wasn't unheard of. And, uh, this famously happened once and, um, and frequently whenever, whenever it's, it, it still can happen, but I, I feel like the people who want to do this type of thing, you know, they, they can never capitalize on it. Like inevitably, you're just gonna get overwhelmed. You know, even if you've got a mad cat, you you can't, you know, you can't kill seven ravens before they all kill you. Yeah. Also, of course, the ultimate insult to this is because of the way tiering works, is that you're probably boosting the entire enemy team into getting fairly nice assets, which means you because you've thrown away your mad cat and probably didn't get that many kills, you're not gonna be able to counter it when suddenly their whole team is in like Ryokans. Or hellhounds, or whatever, or bushwhackers. Yeah, when oh, they're wow, shooting at like you, it could be terrible. Um, I'm, I'm glad it's before my time. When they're shooting at you um, in those lighter assets, not only are they getting more C bills for their current life, um, but they're also ranking up faster. The other really terrifying thing to see isn't just the early Mad Cat, but the uh, I think I see it more often as the early Rasalka. That sucks. Yeah, though sometimes and sometimes not, because if you do have a couple of people with good aim and like a Gauss rifle or LBX, then suddenly they have to play super conservatively. Because somebody buying a, like I know Glarg is famous for just buying a Partisan A, like just, oh, they have an aerospace, bank Glarg, so he buys a Partisan Alpha, which is like only 60k. And then just suddenly they have to play super scared for the entire like 20 minutes, either until they die or until, yeah. Just until they eventually they have to keep looking for outlying assets forever, in which case they're probably not going to make up enough money. I've learned to counter like arrow even as a light mech, or at least to juke bomb runs. I, I but that was, it's a very painful skill to acquire, and I think arrow are definitely one of those one of those situations that most first person games like they don't actually have something that can be as oppressive as an early Rasalka, and a lot of new players get discouraged and. Uh, easily destroyed by them. Yeah, the the solace though is that an aerospace can really only effectively target like one asset at a time. 
and usually only like outlying ones. If your team all like has at least one asset that or one player that's able to hit airspace consistently, and they have to fly over most of your team or whatever, they're going to take so much damage that they can't keep doing things to you. And they also can't like they don't have like the same sort of presence as like an early Ryokin. Like honestly, like the the thing that I would hate to see the most is like a really really early Ryokin because that asset is fast enough to get almost anywhere on the map really quickly. Can one v one lights extremely quickly. Uh, like it can backcap almost anything. It can be a huge force multiplier for a fight, and it's not slow enough where it can get caught out easily by like a couple of ravens or whatever. Early landers or Libyokins, things like that, and and yeah, they can hold the center of a like a center of attention for a fight for a really long time. But yeah, Rosalka can get hard countered really easily if you have a partisan or just a couple of people who manage to hit its wing. So speaking of uh, aircraft like that, um, I know that that uh, is one of the tactics that's good when you are ahead on caps. So what do you do when you're ahead on caps? Prevent the other team from getting caps. <laughs> Yeah, like I I said earlier in reference to Harvest, um, it's such a point that you're ahead on tickets, you're ahead on caps. At that point, it's a matter of controlling what the enemy can do. You know, like on, on Death Valley, if you can, if you've got your forward base, your side base, and you've got mid... Um, if you can keep the enemy bottled up, like have them feeding into you at mid, then then you're going to be very well off because you can repair at mid, and if you're lucky, you'll have an APC. So you know you can, you know you you can make them come to you essentially. Yeah, it's but, very much, onus is always on the enemy team to do to make a play. Yeah, but but like I but like I said early all, as well, you know. The danger is that you get complacent. You, next you know, thing you know, if, you're in a catapult prime waiting for narc beacons. Yeah, and you know, especially like on a on a big map like Death Valley, you know, if 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 you're in that kind of situation, you're ahead, um, and you've got the enemy team for the most part bottled up at mid. If someone on the enemy team realizes that. You know they they can take a black liner or even a, a VTOL or an aerospace, and they can go grab your side base. You know, and then that that puts them ahead on on caps. Yeah, there's too many games where I can recall, oh, we're losing our Ford factory, and then nobody goes back, and then yeah. suddenly like the, okay, you get chipped out at mid, or you don't have any ammo, and then you just you get wiped at mid, and then you have to spend like ten minutes recapping your factory, and you bleed a lot of your ticket lead. Yeah, you really want like. C3 helps a lot when you're ahead because then you can just blanket, especially when you get like multiple um, C3 assets. I remember one uh, match on the new Sirius uh, map where, for whatever reason, uh, the Inner Sphere team had like seven C3 assets. So we could literally see like almost the entire map. And uh, I mean, we're, we're still losing, I think, um, because uh, the enemy team had like. Had had better assets than I, but we could see all of them. They they couldn't get around us. They were just killing us even as we watched them. Well, when you brought up uh, um, uh, this old about um, the uh, Death Valley, I was thinking about when a team's ahead on Death Valley. It's usually because they're holding center, and um, 
and they're holding either the south or north um, side base. Uh, and the team that's behind is often attacking the middle base to try and wrest control of it. If Sometimes, though, they'll try back capping a little bit, which, you know, on Death Valley isn't really as effective, of course, because the center base is worth so many points. I mean, so, so many tickets for uh, ticket bleeding. But um, aircraft are still really useful, I think, in this sort of circumstance where when you're ahead on caps, the aircraft can do some really effective spotting and make sure that your death ball that's preventing the enemy from uh, performing very well, uh, that you can direct that death ball to where it needs to go. And if there's any individual enemy back cappers, you can head them off and uh, they're usually, most back cappers are by themselves, and it's really hard for them to deal with an aircraft if they're all by themselves. Yeah, that's that's true. You know, as, as Direwolf said, you know, in, in aerospace is the best force projection you have. It's the fastest asset in the game. So, you know, if you're just circling mid while you're winning on Death Valley and you get, and Betty says your side base is getting hit, you know, go check it out immediately and hopefully you can, you know, you can make a pass at them and scare them off if you're lucky. And, you know, if, if not, if they, if they dodge you or whatever, you know, you can at least then tell your team that they're there. Yeah. And even if you can't kill them or even if you can't drive them off, if you're able to do a lot of damage to them, then fewer, fewer people on your team have to be drawn out to deal with them. Cause like, uh, for example, in death Valley a lot, uh, if the other team has like two back cappers, it usually means that like even if you have a pretty big asset, you can't on your own like prevent them from taking the base. Like you need to have somebody else come with you. And the more people that you draw with you, and also like in pub games, you know, it's like people who actually read team chat and respond to you are a limited commodity. Like if you're able to make it like as an aerospace pilot, if you're able to weaken a back capper to the point where like one person can very reliably go and finish them and recap the point easily, that's a really huge save on time and manpower. So um, we had head-on tickets, uh, or sorry, uh, head-on caps, behind-on caps, uh, large maps, small maps. Uh, what sort of tactics do you all use on uh, cold maps? <clears throat> on on cold maps, uh, the the first thing that comes to mind for me is that you can you can use mask more effectively. You can yep. be faster all the time and jump jets. Yes. Oh yeah. I am I am a serial like heat overloader of mechs that I am constantly running like well like over my red line and just giving away my radar position. Um because any like if a mech has pulse lasers, I am just holding down that trigger until uh until my mech is screaming at me to stop and probably using mask at the same time if I can. Yeah, so the, the good thing about having mask all the time on colder maps means that you can, like, one of the best uses of mask is just pulsing it, just kind of tapping shift so it screws up how fast you're moving and it makes it harder for the enemy team to keep, or enemy team, or enemy pilots that you're fighting to, like, keep a consistent lead on you and they might hit a different component than they mean to. So, yeah, mask assets, IJJ assets are just so unbelievably good there. And also, like, personally, I really like using large pulse laser assets, find large pulse laser assets there just because you can usually fire them almost constantly. It's 
a really fantastic source of DPS. Well, like strategically, there's not much difference. It's just my asset choice changes a bit. And yeah, also overall, it may, um, go on. No, you fair. Yeah, overall, it also makes like a lot of the um, the lighter clan laser bows like a lot more viable. Um, or maybe even the bigger ones, like No Cap Prime, for example, on cold maps. That thing's insane. It can be very, very oppressive. It's good everywhere. But yes. <laughs> Actually, re related to clan laser boats, I really, 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 really like PPCs on cold maps. Not oh, just for the heat so reasons, good. but because of the screen shake reasons. Mostly so that because, like, you, if you can expect lots of people to be like, oh, I'm going to take my av flying red avatars with a million large lasers, or people with a million, like, large pulse laser assets, just take screen shake stuff. I really like using also SRM boats if it's like a, a map with shorter sight lines, because then it screws over people who are relying very heavily on their aim punch alphas. So a lot of those um, high heat pinpoint weapons that people are going to start taking more often because it's cold, you're saying that you use screen shake weapons to then take advantage of that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm especially fond of the HPPC Argus for, for that type of thing, and, and it has Mask as well, which is a bonus. Yeah, I find that it works really well on maps that are cold and maps that have a lot of um, cover. Yeah, that yeah. HPPCs take a year and a day to recycle. The warmer maps and the maps with the that are m more open, I'm not not a huge fan of using that Argus. I know I remember like trying to use that Argus on uh, Warzone. No, just no, does not work. It's perfectly serviceable. <laughs> I picked it on Thunder Rift once, and it didn't even feel very good there. Oh, I love it on Thunder Rift. That's my favorite map to use it on. Yeah, you can just, it just hide it in the water. Yeah. Water helps with the heat, heat sinks, and also there's tons of covers, so you can usually mask behind it. But it, it doesn't, like, granted, it isn't as, like, instantly punchy sometimes, or, at least, or rather consistently punchy as, like, the new Serum 10 Gauss Argus or the Yak 20 Argus and stuff like that. Yeah, it's definitely think, one that you would use more for hit and run or uh, just, like, not jump sniping because it can't do that, but it's, like, horizontal pop tarting, you know? Yeah, mask. Uh, people always forget that mask also applies to moving backwards, uh, but it can be very helpful then. I think in that T Rift match, it was because I only picked the HPPC Argus when the rest of like the team had also all picked HPPC assets. So we had like four or five HPPCs shooting out of the hilltop. <laughs> That's <laughs> so, terrifying. It was amazing. We had like we had we basically went through like the HPC the HPPC uh, Hollanders and then HPPC Argus and oh, then later, match. yeah and then people are bringing like the demolishers the heavy uh, yeah. PPC and then I brought a Marauder later on with the HPPC. It was great. I remember this match. Yeah, oh too. god, I was there for that one. It was too glorious. many Kraken Jaegers in the same place. I didn't like that being on the other side of it anyway. Um, an another thing, another thing with cold maps or maps with with water that you can exploit is, I mean, you, you can just be way more aggressive. You know, something, something that you that might normally require you to be a little more patient with that you have to chain fire and stagger your shots with a cold map or a map with water. You can put that on group fire 
and just fire them as fast as as they recycle. Um, you know, on 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 Thunder Rift, I've I've become especially fond of lately uh, parking an icy hot Masakari in the middle of the map in the water, and short of uh, a one hundred ton mech or tank, you're you're gonna you're gonna give whatever comes up to you a really bad time. Um, back on Mask, uh, one thing that I wanted to briefly mention is that uh, uh, it also improves your acceleration. So it's wonderful to have uh, when you're trying to uh, get behind terrain real quick. And so that Argus, oh, it's perfect for it. The so, part of this conversation is Extremity, because Extremity was recently redone for uh, terrain control. Oh boy. And this, the Extremity is both a hot map and a cold map alternating in its day-night cycle, which is honestly like my favorite thing that this game has such extreme conditions that will keep flipping. And uh, Acid Choice on Extremity is like its entirely unique meta. Yeah, I would say though that it still favors like taking heat neutral assets as much as possible, uh, because like just if you take something that is like taking full advantage of the heat during the nighttime, like when it's cold, you're probably going to have a lot of issues during the day. Like you need to have a very specific set of secondaries, and even then they're probably not going to be really useful. It is it's interesting in like single life drops, I think, where it really where you can like have where you have a lot of control over where you want to engage, or rather like when you want to engage. So, like, okay, you might have your entire team wait for the nighttime if you're all in laser boats. But, like, that's usually less likely to happen in pubs. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. Um, one of the things I did when I was playing on um, Extremity was I would uh, uh, occasionally I'd take the heavy, large laser Shadow Cat. Uh, and so it's really effective at night. But during the day, uh, because it's so hot, it basically can only use its medium pulse lasers and can't use its heavy large laser at all. Which is low-key fine. Yeah. If you can actually use all the MPLs uh, without having to stagger its fire too much, that's great. Like, three MPLs are the majority of that asset's DPS, which is like the secret of that asset. Also, it has a lot of DHS, which means you can... Like, like any assets with like lots of double heat sinks, like if you just unbind a couple of the a couple of the weapons on it, like that one, unbinding the heavy laser, or just not using it, you can be super effective even during day. Yeah. Do you ever chain fire your pulse lasers with any asset? Do you think that makes a noticeable change in heat efficiency? Nah, I just if if necessary, I'll have like a group with like one pulse laser or two out of three or two out of four or whatever. Uh, but yeah, like staggering them is I think like kind of a it's kind of bad because it means that. Like you're you're firing for longer, which means that you're not dissipating heat for longer. If that makes sense, like every time you fire a weapon, you're not going to be losing heat; you're going to be gaining more. So if you just like have a short spike and then leave it for a little while, you you end up with more left over, or you, or you realize, save more. I didn't realize the heat worked like I didn't realize the heat worked like that, where it, it, they won't continue to, to dissipate the heat as it's added over the firing time of the weapon. I thought that was like figured in. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not positive that it does work that way on a technical level, but like, that's just generally my experience. Yeah, the um, the heat in this game uh, works such that your quickest cooling occurs while you are the closest to overheating, and uh, and so keeping your heat up in some cases will allow you to put out better uh, DPS. 
but the sacrifice of this is that by chain firing your weapons like that, you have to expose your torso uh, more regularly. So, um, you know, if you're running medium pulse lasers, for example, they fire pretty quick. You can do a little bit of twisting, just a little bit with it, but not a lot. Um, but it's enough that it makes a difference whether you're chain firing it or group firing it. Um, another thing is that uh, sometimes I'll have a separate group because I've, my mouse has like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven buttons or something on it. But um, I'll have a separate group just for uh, a chain fired pulse laser so that I can more uh, uh, more reliably take out battle armor. I'll always be the advocate for just having like a group of like a couple, like having one like a group fire for every pulse laser, and then one for a as, as in all the pulse lasers are grouped in one, and then other ones with like only two. And so sometimes it's even better if you like you know which particular arm or torso it's uh, equipped to, because uh, I know that like for the four PPC um, awesome, I think I'm using four different buttons or whatever on that uh, one that fires. Uh, all of them, uh, and then one that chain fires all of them, and then uh, the other two buttons fire all that's on the right side, and on the other one is all that's on the left side. So I can like peek around a corner and fire all of them from just that side, and I don't have to expose my entire mech. Yeah, a bit of a tangent though. Speaking of masked assets for cold, uh, masked PVC assets for cold maps. If you don't ever try the Mastakari Prime in a cold map, you are not living life. It is a fantastic asset always, but especially in cold maps. Is one of the funny things about it is that, sure, with most weapons, you want to alpha strike. With this, there's so many reasons not to alpha strike. Number one, you'll overheat even on a cold map with, if you alpha strike with the Mastakari Prime. So don't, don't alpha strike with it. And then two, uh, it causes so much screen shake why would you even want to alpha strike it? <laughs> yeah, but you don't. The good thing is that you can basically just chain them at your leisure, always, and almost as fast as you want because of uh, forgiving heat, forgiving hit characteristics on maps like frostbite, or if you're in the water and like T rift or stuff like that. It's I, just I a really, a, really good time. I, I have a question. Does does anyone actually use the LRM10 on the Warhawk Prime? Very rarely, but yes, it's most effective. <laughs> I, 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 I tend, I tend to forget it's there. It's a targeting computer, TBH. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> you can arc beacon, just throw it away somewhere. It's like, eh, these might hit. Probably the Warhawk F. Is that the uh, the the large laser ATM for uh, Mathakari? Warhawk F is the Lerm 5 boat. Four ER medium lasers, uh, one right. clan narc with no reloads, and like six LRM 5s. Infinite screen shake. Yeah, that one's a lot of fun, especially if you narc someone and just like constantly like curve LRMs at them or recover. It's a lot of fun to yep. use. Angel ECM, by the way. Used to have a full extra ton of armor, but uh, as a recent patch, no longer. But still very, very effective. So that's probably enough about cold maps. How about hot maps? What, uh, what sort of tactics do you use on hot maps? Vulture Ghost, Vulture, Spam, Lamau, Three... <laughs> Oh my god, the Goss Vulture. It's just, there's always going to be that one mech that has two Goss Rifles on the least, like, with and, and the littlest elts. And in this game, it's the Vulture A, and it's it just has this perfect niche of 
the king of the hot app. It is good everywhere, but oh my god. It is truly everywhere on hot on cold maps or hot maps. Yeah. Because completely heat neutral. But I will always advocate uh, throwing hag at things. Hag assets are quite good. Always. DX. Yeah, even more so now. Cauldron born Charlie. As for things to actually do on hot maps, you will occasionally see people use flamers. Flamers are recently buffed a lot um, to apply their heat faster. However, I haven't seen much increase in their use. Um, like, and honestly, when people like send the new toast and go or something at me, that new uh, flamer hovercraft, I it's still so easy to kill. I can usually kill it before it's actually made me overheat. So. I'm not. I'm not completely sold on the uh, on the viability of flamers as a new tactic. I think they also like don't don't add to your score at all too. Because I mean, I like using the new ones more than I used to the old ones. Problem is, you get like almost no score or money from using them, which I don't like. They're perfectly serviceable. As like the thing is, like using dedicated flamers is probably still not not a good thing, even with the recent buffs. But like, if you have an asset that has a couple of flamers as secondaries. Like if the Bushy G, for example, it's really useful if you're fighting something that like is going to out DPS you, and you just want to make it so they have to be a little spend a bit more time like judging when they can fire at you, like you reduce their damage output. And on hot maps, it's doubly effective, especially if someone takes something that isn't like you know completely heat neutral. Like maybe they have some sort of SRM boat, or like they have some maybe it's like a UAC twenty asset. If you flame them, you have to make them like significantly either either they overheat themselves and melt off their armor, or they have to slow down. You flame kind of blind the enemy by aiming them yes, in the cockpit. Correct. However, yeah. it's hard to do this while also firing all of your other weapons where you want to be firing them, especially since you kind of have to lead the flamers a little bit. Yep. But I have I have a whole other rant about how the aim uh, in this game with the weapon design makes it actually uh, secretly the greatest first person shooter of all time. But that's a different conversation. Except for weird convergence problems. Okay. So. All right, so our topic right now, uh, we are discussing hot maps and what sort of tactics you might use on a hot map. And everybody else just brought up flamers, which I really like flamers, and I like them even more now. In fact, I think they're my favorite battle armor killing weapon. I'm great at that, but I'm still... Uh, I, I've never taken a mech with flamers and been like excited to use flamers against another mech on a hot map. I'll take the mech at Foxtrot if the map is like conducive to fighting people and sort of like limited areas, uh, low mobility areas. Oh, that one's scary. I hate fighting that thing. It like makes you heat up and it's got so much like brawling firepower too. Yep. Where's not my mouse if I've ever, whenever I try to use it? It's just got so many buttons and you need to be hitting the, all of them all the time. You're, you need to be hitting your chain fire SRMs, your flamers, and your UAC 20 like just constantly. It's too much. Loki, I just uh, group fire the SRMs, which is probably like I, I mean, I do have a, like a chain fire group for them, but you can mostly just chain. Uh, sorry. Yeah, if you just group fire them most of the time, like the recycle is really fast. And then you also have the ATMs, which are most of the screen shake you need. And if you're fighting in really close range anyway, I think like the screen shake isn't super important. It's more about just getting down your damage. Yeah. For a hot maps, I found also a lot of people shy away from them. But laser boats 
actually kind of work if you can spread out and just not alpha all the time. As a joke, I took the expulse Uziel on uh, Scorched the other day, and it was surprisingly easy to manage and pumped out a lot of damage in a world of people missing their ballistics. There's one uh, particular thing about that map. Oh my gosh! <laughs> if you get in the, um, if you get inside the uh, pools of molten metal or lead or whatever that is, uh, even though it will heat you up, that the ambient temperature will go way up. The um, conductivity is really high in there, and so you can actually fire those um, those high heat over time weapons like large expulse lasers just like do, 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 just fire them constantly and never ever overheat yeah I, I feel like not too many people realize that, I feel like not too many people are aware of that mechanic because they they go into the molten lead and they see their temperature spiking and then they just immediately think oh I gotta get out of here I would still say that, well, I think for the most part, like those pools aren't super common on the map. And when they are, it's usually in places where like they're really exposed and there's like elevated areas near forward bases that make it a bad place to be. So like, even though you can use like expulse lasers there, it's like mostly on the rest of the map, it isn't usually like there isn't usually a, a big enough payoff from it. Like you can maybe like you can use them because often the assets that have a lot of expulse lasers have enough double heat sinks to keep using them for a fairly long time. But you're still not really getting like the optimal damage output that you could be. Okay. It's still worthwhile to shoot planes, which is something yeah. that I, man, every single time I buy an asset, I'm always thinking back in my mind, what do I do about all of those freaking planes on the enemy team? Because there's always a lot of planes out there. ER large lasers, clan ones preferably, massed LBX, Gauss, end of all things. Well, sounds scorched. If you get high up, doesn't that also cool you down? It does, yeah. Yes. The the ambient temperature is lower if you scale hills. The Thor Echo is perfectly usable if you get to the very top of the map. Like you can oppress people. You just have to wait a while because the dissipation is pretty low. Oh, something I forgot to do. Uh, architect, uh, go ahead and introduce yourself. How long you've been playing? Uh, I'm Architect Smoke Jaguar. I've been playing for two years, give or take a big. Big break in the middle of it, but not that long compared to all the old forts around here. <laughs> um, oh yeah, another thing with uh, hot maps uh, that you mentioned, architect, was uh, using laser boats. I remember on Inferno getting uh, just obliterated by a flying red one time. I <laughs> I thought I was going crazy. I I didn't realize that it could be used so effectively. But they were just firing laser, laser, one at a time, laser. <laughs> That's the boring way to do it. Take a, uh, what is it, like the Candy Cane Nova Cat, the one with all the lasers in the world, a uh, la bunch of heavy lasers, a bunch of pulse lasers. That one just has so many double heat sinks, and the weapons aren't like super heat spiky for the most part, that you can basically just fire the large pulse, uh, all the pulses like constantly, and yeah, and you don't even really need to chain them, like even in your heavy ones. The thing, the secret for Inferno is that dissipation is hardly impacted. It's just really high ambient temperature. So if you have some asset that doesn't have like super heat spiky weapons, like a million clan ER PPCs, but you have a lot of heat sinks, you can just use it pretty much as normal. Oh, something that I remembered, uh, we were talking about mask earlier, and then also about heat and how cooling occurs more quickly when you're closer to the red line. Um, 
or the yellow line at least. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't spend too much time over that yellow line lest you break your heat sinks. But um, with mask, you're going to find yourself uh, attaining a higher sustainable um, top speed if you try to hover near that yellow line. If you go too far over, then you're going to um, show up on enemy radar because you'll show up all the way across the map uh, when you overheat like that. But as long as you're keeping it below that yellow line, um, your cooling will be most efficient uh, without those downsides. And uh, whereas if you're like, if you let go for several seconds on the mask and let it go way down and then you start doing it again, you're not going to be nearly as fast as if you hover right below the yellow line. Remember to give yourself plenty of time to cool down before you actually get into a fight. Yes. Yeah. And I think that is uh, uh, especially key on these really hot maps where, or well, the low conductivity maps. Like, um, I seem to remember that Sirius, uh, or Sirius is a, it's a cold map, but I think it has low conductivity, if, if I remember correctly. Very, yes. Yeah. And so, hey. if you're going to mask there, you should probably, uh, uh, you should probably let off the mask for a while before you get into combat. I think Lunacy has the same sort of thing as well, but nobody plays Lunacy now that Sirius exists. But yeah. Your game is better for that. Yeah. I miss it sometimes, but only sometimes. Yeah, there's certainly some uh, nice... Uh, it's certainly nice sometimes to have that area control instead of um, terrain control style. Where Until you... someone hides with a BA at the very edge of the... Uh, very into the cap zone, and you spend five minutes looking for them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you ever intentionally overheat yourself when you're about to lose a battle to deny the. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. I oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Slamming the jump jets and just rocketing off into space at max temperature and blowing up. It's also entertaining. It <laughs> happen and no one gets the Only kill. I kill me. Especially effective in Solaris Arena. When you're not only fighting to accelerate your Seabell score as fast as possible, but to deny other people their Seabells. Yep, no kill card for them, as far as I can tell. Regarding uh, heat sinks, uh, not to also coolant. Um, like coolant is pretty important. Sometimes I have gone back to repair just to refill my coolant, even though I still have plenty of armor. Because I'm such a heat fiend, I am always dumping my coolant like the first battle because I've used too much uh, energy weapons. But um, some I've heard it. Some people say that well, heat sinks are just another type of ammo that you shouldn't worry about breaking them because they'll just replenish out of repair. As long yeah. as you don't completely break them, right? Different. Uh, yeah, heat sinks are like a different. They are very much like a different type of armor. Or your armor. Uh, alternatively, your armor is also a heat sink. Uh, depending on what type of situation you want to be in. If you need to kill the enemy really, really fast and you think that it's worth overheating yourself a little bit, totally worth it. Just brag about how few hit points you still have when you get into their parabay to the enemy in all chat. I do. I, I am also guilty of this. I remember Sorry, what's up, Cecil? I just said same. You should have had an item on uh, Warlord. You should have had an item on this itinerary, which is just Chat Warrior tactics. Never leave oh, the hangar. No. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do that. But but I have to decide what mech 
to buy, and I have to look up literally every uh, item on the wiki before I buy it. My menu is pretty good these days. Yeah. Thank you, Star <laughs> Star Wraith, and other people too. Um, let's see. So, uh, what other stuff were we going to talk about? Oh, yeah. So, when should you actually? We we already talked about air assets, but when should you actually take LRM assets? Probably never. 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 Yep. Never anyway. LRM boats, always never. Assets that carry a spare LRM rack, like that really nice discount Thanatos, that's really handy to just have a spare LRM handy. Oh, the LRM20 Thanatos? I yeah. love it. It's great. It's cool. LRM is always just such a nice complement to another well-rounded kit, but Boats that are exclusively LRM are really hard to make work unless you've got a team dedicated to making that work. I feel like LRMs are secretly amazing at like at 500 meters. Closer, actually, like 300, like around, like if you have around 300, like usually you can, well, I mean, it depends on what you're fighting exactly, but for certain assets, like, yeah, staying from like 300 to 600, 500 meters or something, you can just do a ton of damage. Also depends on. Clan versus IS LRMs because they're wildly different. Oh yeah, Clan LRMs are streak MRMs. Do not at me. <laughs> Pretty accurate. Yeah, that is yeah, a I, that is a medium uh, laser take. I I very very rarely find myself wanting inner sphere LRMs, and uh, and like others have said, the one the dedicated LRM car carriers are very very hard to use, but um. I, I do enjoy clan assets that carry multiple smaller LRM launchers. Um, I'm very fond of the Black Lantern A, which has a PPC medium lasers and two LRM fives, and whichever Hellhound has the three medium, the, the three heavy medium lasers and the three LRM fives. Those are both very fond. Obligatory summoner prime shilling. It also yes. has a Beagle Active probe now. Yeah, Invictus, so the faster. Invictus was just talking about this in um, the last podcast, the last episode of our podcast, um, about how he sort of painted himself into a corner in regard to design when it comes to uh, LRMs because um, years and years ago he requested that um, the, uh, the later years of the Wandering Samurai devs that they um, improve the... Um, the smaller LRM launchers because they were basically just inferior to the larger ones in every way. And so they uh, decided to take a suggestion and they increased the rate of fire and they uh, reduced the lock-on time to those. Uh, and it's been wonderful. It's, uh, it's perfect for Living Legends. And it's, it's really helped uh, getting those, um, making those, systems actually useful but now we've run into this issue where um like with clan lrms that uh in for most builds there's no disadvantage to having three lrm fives versus uh one lrm 15 and so it's sort of become this um this trend where he just uh, uh invictus has been putting more and more smaller launchers on things and now there's very little reason to run single larger launchers. Tonnage, but that's kind of like more a build build rules thing. I, I thought don't think. 
I thought the yeah, I think the current build rules make it so that clan LRMs the the, the tonnage isn't really different. Are they not smaller? There's, there's still a little bit. It's like an extra ton or two. I'm pretty sure. But um, I, I I don't know the numbers right off the top of my head, but I as as I'm sure most of us are aware in. BattleTech tabletop clan LRMs are half of the tonnage of inner sphere ones. I know that is not the case in Living Legends. I know I, I think it's somewhere like in between. I think clan LRMs are like seventy five percent tonnage of inner sphere ones in Living Legends. Yeah, so the clan LRM five is two tons, and the clan LRM ten is four tons, and the clan LRM fifteen is six tons, and the clan LRM twenty is eight tons. So you're really only dealing with uh, ammo tonnage at that point. You know, like, because I have noticed this trend too, and I feel like there should be like a there, like there should be a reason to have larger launchers like on some assets, and if they're like if they're not strong enough for whatever reasons, then they should just uh, reduce the price of larger launchers. You know, so that it's more expensive to have four LRM fives than it is to have a single LRM twenty. Maybe not by a huge amount, but by like a little bit or something. Yeah, that, that's an price interesting. Way affect, to do it. Price affects your ability to use an asset in different. You know, like assets don't have to be good in all situations, all times of the game. An asset just has to be good for whatever price it is. So if the LRMs aren't worth their weight, maybe they could be worth their price. Larger launchers, it's a very small bonus, but they do stream out a lot slower. And I've found taking the Vulture Prime, that's the one with the pulses, right? Yeah. yeah. The Vulture Prime, in scenarios where you can land it just right, they can handle like a really long, extended, drawn-out MRM volley that just splashes and splashes for days. Yeah, but on on the other hand, if you've got something like a Thor Prime, you can just chain fire. Chain firing that. Who knows? It'd be a good thing to see whether one LRM5 versus three, or one LRM15 versus three LRM5s, which is more effective as a screen shake weapon. I think it's because they recycle faster and you pump out more missiles per minute. It's just, the thing is, you can basically keep an almost unbroken chain of LRM5s. Or 15, you can like wait for when it's done. Yeah, you, you can either wait for a stun or you can see them coming and just not shoot. It's very predictable as opposed to the constant stream of a series of LRM5s. And the, the triple LRM5 gives you the opportunity to chain fire or group fire. So um, like the, the new Thor, it can be used as a twist fighter now because with the Beagle Act Probe, it can lock on with its LRM5 so quickly that you can look Launch LRM5s, launch LBX, and what's the other thing? PPC? Yeah. yeah. But I mean, yeah. that's not really making the best use of it. Right. Like, there are other assets that just like are able to do more for twisting. Like, yeah. the advantage of having chain LRM5s is that you can lock down targets. Yeah. There is one advantage though, that like larger launchers have versus the small ones, and that is that you can switch targets a lot more easily. Like, you have to focus, like, to really make the most out of chained launchers, you need to be basically torturing one target. And if you are not, like, if you're, like, not making sure that you're chaining your LRMs at, like, a specific rate, then you're just kind of, yeah, you're, you're not really getting all the, you're not really stopping them from answering you, and you're not like getting a DPS advantage. Like, if you're not mitigating their DPS, then you're not going to win. So, larger launchers, you can just look at them, lock, fire, and then switch to something else. 
And more importantly, you can do this while being really mobile in a way that can actually be difficult to snipe with like Gauss rifles and lasers while moving at speed. Yeah. You can you can hold you can get a good enough lock to just loose a volley of missiles and then turn away and keep piloting over some kind of terrain or getting into cover and so on. People always take like you know the catapult prime and then just sit in one place slowly shooting salvos when really you should be moving around as much as you can and letting off volleys. Uziel F is the most underutilized asset in the game for like I mean people buy it. It's not underbought, but it's underutilized. People don't way over. Oh my god. (laughs) I always wince whenever I see a player buy one. The the triple Lerm 10 Uziel can be an absolute pain in the butt when utilized correctly because it's fast and it's mobile and yeah, it's it's just very difficult to deal with if, if used properly and it can punch way above its tonnage. That's another one that, uh, that I helped design with Invictus. I like re- regarding I personally like as the game is right now you know I, I like I like the smaller LRM launchers because they have they have the screen shake and they have the disruption but I when you know if if I want just sheer missile damage I don't really see much point in the game as is to take larger alarm launchers over ATM standards that's just my personal take flexibility to run into people's faces the yeah. um, flexibility Okay. Well, eight. Yeah, when we're discussing LRMs, are are we also including standard ATMs and extended range ATMs? Um, I would say those, no. Is an ER ATM different than an LRM in a distinguishing yeah. way? Oh yeah. Yeah, they well, can't get well, behind clearly it is, so quickly. This yeah, it's like LRMs are more of a suppression thing. ATMs are more of just like here is like tons of damage delivered almost instantly. Not to mention that ATMs can arc over things a lot better and track better, especially more than the clan LRMs, which are so slow and do not arc at all. They do. They do. You have to to flick them. You have to flick them. Yeah, flicking button. There's no native jumping that they do like the inner sphere ones. But so flicking, flicking is valid, but and and for me, for for my preference, the flicking is just another tactic that favors the ATMs because yep. they launch faster. They turn faster too. So much more on an ATM. It also favors the uh, smaller launchers <laughs> again because uh, the if you flick an LRM five, uh, you're not going to lose your target lock. But if you flick uh, an LRM twenty, you're going to lose your target lock usually before. Um, before all 20 LRMs have left the tube. Yep. Like that is like a design flaw that should be altered. Like maybe maybe the smaller launchers have a faster lock on and faster to decay, and then the larger launcher has a like vastly longer like lock on retention. Yeah. yeah. Oh. I do believe there's some engine issues because I remember asking about this a while ago. Okay, that that makes sense because it is pretty weird when you shoot off a volley of LRMs and like the last couple are just streaking off nowhere. When you're like, really, it can't even stay locked on for its own volley. Same happens for the ATM twelves and uh, ATM standard twelves, but you, you can usually mitigate it just by like 
having unlocked arms and throwing your mouse across the key, uh, across your mouse pad or whatever or your desk. So that's what flicking is. Uh, I, I suppose we didn't really describe it. Yeah, basically, it's uh, basically you just move your mouse to like the edge of the screen, ideally like kind of towards the back of wherever you're going, or like towards your like back shoulders or whatever. And then the missiles kind of arc out, going slightly in a different direction, but they maintain their lock. So then they arc over cover and towards whatever it is that you're shooting at. DMs, you can make them converge into uh, to hopefully you know, like more of the missiles will strike the same component. Yep. When do we reject? Huh. Also, never. Yeah. Mostly. There's actually a, a, a wiki article all about when, or not wiki article, it's a section of a wiki page that describes when you shouldn't eject. Or no, no, when you should eject. Because there's only like six exceptions and they're small. Sudden death mode. Sudden death mode. Uh, when you've got someone who, oh, not even... If you've got a high alpha mech and you have to land your alpha and you've got a big cooldown between your next alpha and the guy's one shot and you're one shot, sometimes if you feel like you've got a big brain, maybe you can pull it off. Better to just wait, I always think. It's I only, only do it if it's like... Eh. I remember one time on, I think it was Ivory Tower, I was in a Mad Cat and the score was good, going down to like 0-0. Zero, zero. Um, but it, it wasn't actually at zero. It was like just almost there. And my mad cat had like almost no armor whatsoever. So I ran away and ejected and uh, just stayed alive. And then the enemy team ignored my damaged mad cat because there's no pilot in it while fighting other people. When if they had just killed the unpiloted asset, they could have won the game. Rip. So that was like a that was a stealth eject, which I did not think would work, but somehow that's that was a, that was an actual technically a tactic. I think it's more. I think it, that situation would be appropriate if it's like, oh, I have enough money to go buy something useful because if I die here, we lose, and I won't be able to respawn. But, Here's the yeah, uh, the wouldn't link on that happening uh, really. to how to eject. Uh, I put it in the uh, Living Legends general, uh, not general chat, but the Living Legends uh, chat. Uh, Gameplay tactics ejecting. Yeah. That's so, probably most of. There isn't too much else I think really to discuss except like whatever is there is probably enough. Yeah, it is a tilting thing when you're dueling someone, they eject and then kill you with their BASRMs. It is very salt-inducing. I never mind if some. It's only playing themselves though. If they're in an asset that's like worth less than yours, that you still got a positive ticket trade. It's like, haha! Now you must walk home with for like five minutes or commit suicide. Yeah, make sure to actually kill their asset though when they do that. If like if they're within an inch of inch of death and you are an inch of within an inch of death too, blow up their mech first, then kill them. Hmm, yeah, looking at the wiki page, um you should ask you guys this. So say you, you're in a mech with like a bunch of all all its weapons on its arms, right? Like a Nova Cat or like an adder or something, and then you lose all your weapons. What do you do then? Do you just like suicide or what do you do? Sometimes. Sell. Usually just sell is better than suicide. If you can yeah, if you can afford to, just sell. Also, it prevents the enemy team from getting your tickets. If if you can if you can get it back and sell it and have enough to buy something else, sure you can sell. Um 
sometimes if if that happens to me, I'll just like go try to zero throttle enemies. Yeah. Just like block body block them, block their shots, something like that. Yep. I just run into I just try to run into the enemy usually if like I don't think I can get away. If you're especially lucky, you'll do that and your mech will go critical. So that that's a bonus too. <laughs> yeah, you can also kill people with cook off. Yeah. <laughs> on top of people and annoy them. Cook-off is a really reliable way of killing stuff, actually. Like, if, if I'm really, really low, and I don't think I have any enemy, any weapons left for, like, enough armor left or whatever to actually survive the fight or kill the enemy, I just try and go right in their face, because if I get killed, sometimes your mech just explodes enough, and if they have, like, an open torso or whatever, it will still do damage at, like, a multiplied rate, and it'll explode. It's a good time. If I remember correctly, didn't one of the devs say that the damage on death of a mech is randomized? I don't know. I do know it's, that crits are scaled chance. by the weight. It's a random extra credit chance of crit. I mean, the default mech explosion is some random value between X and Y. Sometimes or most of the time it'll be low, and sometimes it'll just be like giant explosions. And like explosions as well. Yeah, I've oh yeah, killing killing enemies with your own ammo explosion is really nice. Right, but you can do that. Likely. What? Seen it happened to me once. Board. I yeah, was able to fact, hug somebody with my right. Gauss Argus. They blew up the Gauss arm and they died. They had almost no health <laughs> granted, hilarious. but it worked. Intentionally uh, targeting uh, a mech that has um, like a serious ammo explosion weapon is actually like a good way to help you kill yeah. them. Like if you go up against an arrow catapult for whatever reason, targeting the arms, if those explode, they deal so much damage to the side torso. That it's like a really fast way to kill the mech. If you see an arrow catapult, you need to take up its arms just to teach it a lesson, not to kill it. Correct. Hell yeah, I'm just in principle. Take off the arms, then the legs. Farm <laughs> it, because it's useless. That could be a whole another topic here is uh, when do you leg your opponent? Only if they're in Lanterns and Owens, <laughs> maybe Locus. A more fruitful thing to talk about is when is it a good time? When do you want to focus something center torso versus shoulders versus its arms? Talking about the Nova Cat was a good example because there's a couple Nova Cats where it's like you knock off one of its arms and you've taken out 80% of its firepower. And then, of course, you've got the Gauss Uller, the Heavy Gauss Thanatos, the Heavy Gauss and Flying Red Avatars. You have 20 Uller? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So this is this kind of plays into is I, I have this rant that I have told many people um, at different times, mostly in real life. Basically, MechWarrior Living Legends is actually like an incredibly fantastic first-person shooter. Even if you have never liked a mech game before, this game cares about your aim in a way most first-person shooters actually don't care about how well their player can aim. But in this game. Your ability to aim many different kinds of weapons with different projectile speeds, which range from infinite with lasers to like MRMs or something. Your ability to aim them at all the different components on the enemy mech and then counterplay with twisting your own aim and trying to like anticipate or counter twist in anticipation of the enemy's twisting and dodging is an extremely deep like like way to like play a combat game where just your mouse movement, no, no other controls, but just the mouse movement becomes so complicated when you're trying to fight someone and you're trying to decide 
which component part am I shooting at? And so you'll get like brawls or duels where one person like opens up with a Gauss rifle and they wanted to shoot the side torso because that's usually the fastest way to kill a mech, but their mm-hmm. Gauss shot struck an arm and then they're just like, well, I guess I'm shooting this arm first and I guess I'm destroying the arm first now. Yeah, a lot of other games, you know, they uh, you aim for the head to deal more damage or you aim for center of mass just to make sure you actually hit them at all. But in this game, you aim for the thing that's already damaged usually to make sure that you take that part out. But your own defense depends on your aim because you can create cover for your own damaged parts by looking away from the enemy. And especially when you consider all the different sizes and shapes of mechs and their different torso twist rates and their different torso twist like uh, twist capability, it's a very unique combination that makes it my favorite game. Yeah, definitely. I feel like um, this game sort of strikes like a very good balance as far as like you know the um, FPS elements are concerned versus like strategy. Because you know if you like both those types of games, I think you're really going to like Living Legends because time to kill is like pretty slow, and so that sort of like gives you a moment to like think about what your options are, and then there's like all kinds of other stuff to play with too. Slow. Uh, brought this up. Many people have brought this up. It only gives you more opportunities to flex your superior skills and have inferior people flex their inferior skills and make more mistakes. So just spreading out the time it takes for to kill someone, people get to express their different skill levels more thoroughly. And you look at the, for comparison, an unfair comparison of Call of Duty, you're running around playing a line of sight tag, basically. You see someone and they're dead. That's it. It's more like a random lottery than anything you can get good at rather than memorizing the maps and stuff like that. I don't even think the time to kill in this game is even long. Like it, you kill people in seconds constantly every pub game when you just go and it's like, oh, this is a medium mech. Okay, I, I alpha the side torso. I alpha it again. They died. No, nah, I mean, compared to like Call of Duty and stuff, I mean, the time to kill is pretty slow in here. Yeah, there, there is that difference, but. Like time to kill, like being in seconds rather than like oh I, I shot someone once is a pretty big difference. Yeah, I I really like the whole thing like when I I'm damage spreading so effectively that now it's time to twist my back armor towards them because I've lost everything else. It works. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. That's I why love, I love with three sixty max for just for that reason. Love stopping facing my back to my opponent when they're about to when they when their Gauss rifle is about to reload and then they just shoot my back with their Gauss rifle, and I'm like, well, that was a waste of your shot, and I turn back around and kill them before they've opened up my side door. So. Knowing when to shoot, or rather like timing your shots, is something that I think a lot of other games that really require you to do so much, because like there isn't so much time between shots. Like Maybe they say reload cycles, but that's kind of more like a larger tactical element rather than like a moment-to-moment thing. Occasionally I'll even get into like a game of chicken with another mech, so we'll be shooting at each other, shooting at each other, and we both get really weak on like one side torso or center torso. And next thing you know, we're both turned away from each other and we're not shooting. And I'm like, what's happening? And then they'll like, sometimes they'll even stare at me and be waiting for me to twist so they can shoot that center torso. And they're just like, maybe shooting me with only their lasers and their Gauss rifle hasn't fired. And I'm like, it's been six seconds. It, Eight seconds, ten seconds. When when's this gas coming? 
<laughs> they're they're just holding you it find out twist. Who's the pilot. That's that's when the game is so great. And I'm still I'm still learning how to uh, properly anticipate and screen shake enemies before they shoot things like gas rifles and large lasers. That's that takes real finesse to get that timing down. Yeah. Also, sometimes even if sometimes even if you get it right, you're just not far enough away where it really matters. So sometimes it's just better to go for the image. Meaningful in that sense really comes into play at the larger ranges. Uh, AC five, no, new AC ten sub one hundred meters, not going to do as much as HVAC ten at nine forty nine. Yeah, it's how much space you take up in their screen, or how much like if like if, when you move their mouse or move their aim when you hit them, like how much does it like go over different components on you? If you're really close, you take up most of the screen. The mouse doesn't really go anywhere. If it's far away, it like goes somewhere entirely different. Oh, uh, I just remembered something about uh, LRM assets that we we were talking about earlier. We didn't really bring up air LRM assets, and uh, I know that the size of the air LRM launcher really determines um, how it gets used. Like air LRM tens are a medium range weapon because by the time you've launched off your uh, your second volley of them, since the LRMs come out five missiles at a time uh, with each click, um, you're basically within medium range. And then your air LRM 20s are basically short range weapons instead of, <laughs> even though it has it says long in the name. Uh, I just treat them as like DPS weapons or like stair weapons, like a rotary auto cannon or something. You just take a little bit longer to do your damage. The time was look at the law. There's no difference between clan and IS LRM air LRMs, are there? No. I uh, figured. Okay. Yeah, they, I, yeah they're I, also easier to use, I think, like as far as air weapons go, because I mean I'm not personally very good at like flying. So typically um, I actually prefer like LGBs and um, air LRMs just because I think they're easier to use overall. Yeah, I, I personally do not like LR, air LRMs at Same. all because um Same. I, I uh, aside from range, I think they're just inferior to air MRMs in every conceivable way. Uh, they're slower. They have a long lock on. I mean, I mean, their their travel time is slower. They have a longer lock on time, and their rate of fire is just abysmal. Like I, I don't use them very frequently, and in the occasions I do find myself in them, I I forget that I'm supposed to keep clicking. So I'm yeah. like, oh, I, I farted out one burst. Wait, what? What's going on here? You know, I th I think that honestly, I think it, it might be interesting if the mechanics for air LRMs and ground LRMs were reversed. I think that could be interesting because as it is right now, I just think air LRMs are just utterly pointless. I'll tell you that I wouldn't want that to be the case uh, because. The reason that air LRMs are good and are like and they are make no mistake they are like they're annoying to use but they're still definitely like effective because you can lock them early like you can just get a lock at like one thousand meters and you can just keep throwing them at people which means that if you want to play safe if you want to just like throw out your missiles and then break off and be basically really 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 hard to respond to like it would be horrible if a lerm like for example the lerm Visigoth, which I think is like what two lerm twenties or a bunch of lerm tens or fifteens and there's our solid too yeah. It's, it would be like the, I know a lot of pilots who will just fire the lerms, maybe the primaries if they get in range, 
all their bombs and then break off, and they'll just keep doing that over and over. Like the the objective is like for LRMs, it's not the matter of like okay, it's like MRMs where you're just dumping a ton of damage and you're getting a pick, which is like personally how I like to use aerospace. Uh, if you're using air LRMs, you're just being a presence. You're just constantly throwing out damage. Not very precise, but you're just being annoying. You're able to maybe get picks or just wear down armor over a long period of time. So the smaller launchers that are tacked on to further builds, uh, I believe the Avar Charlie, that's got the heavy large laser and two LRM tens, I believe. Um, if not Avar Charlie, that's what it's got. I find it's since it's not the dedicated weapon, I mean, you throw it into a dive, it's going to help a little bit. But it really helps out when it's not the best time to dive because a lot of aerospace is choosing the right time to dive in and go for a kill. You can't just keep looping and diving every single time you get the chance or else you're going to get shot down immediately. And when you've got to pick your targets and you've got to keep doing a couple loops and scope the area out, you could at least throw out a couple of volleys. And that's always nice to do. That's more or less when I see those smaller launchers shine. I never really see the big flying arrow or LRM boats. I hardly see them. In and the LRM Rizalka and the LRM Visigoth were really oppressive for a while, and they're still quite good. There's very specific pilots who use them a lot, and they, I think they've been taking a break, but they're, they're mostly annoying for the rest of the weapons they have, but the point is like they can just keep on putting damage and not be easily answered. And if they if they were able to launch all their alarms instantly, it would be even safer for them. We talk about uh, just a little bit about the sound of LRMs when they hit because it's amazing. It's so good. Not not the uh, not the hit reg sound when you hit someone else with LRMs, but just getting hit by a big volley of LRMs actually still sounds amazing and very much like you're in a mech getting blasted yeah. to pieces. It's really great. I, I, I really love the sound design in this game. Sound design is amazing. I'm baffled by it every time, but it pains me to no end every time Invic says he's playing without sound and he just memorized all the reload sounds because the game sounds so good. Right. Yep, TLDR air LRMs are mostly just for like playing safe. What about the um, air ATMs? I mean, I've never used those, but do any of you guys use them? They're pretty similar, I think, just with less range. They fire faster, fire slash fly faster. The, um, the most the most frequent air ATM assets is there was the air ATM Avar Fighter, which oh, was God. pretty infamous as a as an early game buy. And then there's the ATM Xerxes. I, I feel like outside of I feel like outside of those they they don't see much use. Yeah. ATM standard Avar is still pretty decent for an early game fighter, but I just don't really like medium arrow very much. Uh, one of the nice uh, quality of life improvements we got recently, at least for air uh, for air LRMs, was the um, Shiva with the um, air LRMs. It now has four air LRM 15s instead of four uh, instead of two tens and. Wait, no, it was two, I think it was two 10s and two 20s, and now it's four 15s. If you're not buying an Agent Orange, don't talk to me. <laughs> and uh, the, the improvement there uh, is that because it has four identical launchers, each click of the mouse fires the same number of missiles, and it runs out with the final click. The way it used to be 
was that the 15s would run out and or the 10s would run out and then the 20s run out. And uh, so there would be cir- circumstances where you didn't fire all of your 20s and you'd already fired all your 10s and then you go for another pass and you, suddenly you find out that your 20s are already empty because uh, you only had five missiles left in their volley. And so you have to actually map a separate button just to empty the uh, uh, the, the LRM-20s separately. Uh, I, I will never understand Invictus, Invictus's uh, penchant for wanting to put like different sized weapons of like the same class on things. It just feels very obtuse to me. Like I, I especially don't like the the Mars that has a Hag twenty and a Hag forty. Why not just two thirties? Because it, it would just be much more usable for the same reason. Because you know you, you just you just don't. It would be one less thing you have to think about. Thunderbolt Atlas is the most. Painful example I can think of in this vein. With no, the multiple thunderbolt sizes are great. I but the fact it takes an extra second to get the good lock on the bigger missiles is just like ah, no. That's exactly why it's good. I will. I will. That one I will fight to the death over. And I don't want to spend too much time over it. But the short answer is, if you have some, uh, like if you if you just have a group that's for chaining the light ones, like if you have to stare with that atlas, you don't want to have like like ideally you don't want to stare at anything for a really long time. Living legends. Like you want to always have some ability to suppress the enemy shooting at you, or you want to do all of your damage instantly and then turn away. If you can throw out a couple of things that are good for screen shaking early while your bigger bigger guns are recycling or are locking, that's perfect. I really, really like that atlas precisely for that reason. I have okay. one group for chaining the table fives, one for the tens. I, I can I can I can I can respect both sides of this here. Like I, I see the the validity of wanting to toss out a little bit of screen shake early. But it, it it does also irk me having the different lock-on times because you really have no feedback on the different lock-ons. You know, yeah. you just you just have it's just the same tone playing twice. And I feel like it, we're all probably very well aware of how easily the sound engine in Crisis can break down yeah. in the heat of a big kerfluffle. So it, you know. In in theory, okay, but in in practice, it it could use some improvement. There could be like maybe a you uh, you know I I know flash coders for UI are solid gold. You know they're worth their weight in gold. They're very rare, but you know they, there could there could be better feedback. Yeah, it'd be nice because we've got um, like you have to be so vigilant when it comes to keeping track of what. What sort of lock-on weapons you have, especially like um, what the there's. I know there's several assets that have narc and LRMs, and there's even some that have I think narc LRMs and streaks or some other lock-on no, weapon. Not anymore. Yeah. Not anymore. Okay. If it still existed. Well, there's in, that. In, there's that one Shadow Cat that has the HE ATMs, the LRMs, and the narc. Right. The thing is, those have very it, distinct like. Yeah, it's a little. Them. Yeah, it's a little easier to manage if each different lock-on weapon has a different range. You know, so if I'm in a Raven and Prime and I'm getting a lock-on at 500 meters, I know that's my narc because I know my SSRM don't reach that yeah. far. You know, so it's a little easier to manage then. But with something like the the T-Bolt Atlas, 
it's a little more I money. Think for, I think the Atmos is actually one of the easier ones to manage because you know that like okay, the smaller like the smaller caliber one is always going to be the one that locks faster. So I just always have like one group for the small caliber one and one for the larger one. So as soon as I hear the second tone, it's when I start using the bigger ones. That versus the shadow cat, if someone just falls within 200 meters of you, you know, what do you do then? Always shoot the, always prioritize the HE ATMs, I would think, unless you're specifically just trying to do a peekaboo. In terms of of lock sounds, because then you're just going to have three distinct sounds and the only way you can tell the difference is which one having memorized which one is the fastest. I'm pretty sure, like, well, I mean, you're not going to really be shooting the... Yeah, I mean, you always want to prioritize the HATMs at short range anyway. Like, that's something that it's never really no problem for me. Like, I would always want to make sure that those are the big ones, and they lock fast. Yeah. Like, I I think ATMs are almost always the first thing that locks. Like, just you always know they're fast, and also just, like, in combat, you probably want to prioritize the thing that's good in close range. So, like, I don't know, that particular variant, I think, is just, like, really intuitive, because, like, they're... The order of which you want to fire your stuff anyway is the order in which they lock. Okay, so I think I want to move into our last topic before we sign off for the night. And the last topic is going to be um, what is your favorite asset and or tactic that goes with it? For fun or just like in general? Like is in you think the most like is the most effective in pubs? The one that you enjoy. I used to use the old Shimmer D. Like every single match, the one with five lasers, a heavy medium machine gun, and a T10. Literally the most popular medium back. (laughs) Over optimized. It was designed by committee. Hmm. Unfortunately, now the uh, the 49K uh, price range is actually a little bit. It's kind of I don't have like a favorite mech in that like price range, so it's always a little bit awkward to get out of the light mechs and into the heavier or even into like the bigger mediums. Mm-hmm. But I've really enjoyed. Um, uh, well, no problem is that I don't have a favorite. I have a flavor of the week, so my answer is actually very bad for this question. A recommendation when you're in the forty nine bracket and you're looking for some something to really push yourself out. The Ares are really good specifically for that. Yep. Oh yeah, you feel free to one. use a tank uh, as your choice also, if you want. Something I really like is the um, the Vulture with the three dual SRM6. I know it runs very hot. It's not always the best mech to use, but oh my god, it's so much fun to use. The the Vulture F can can really can can really it, it can punch above its weight, especially if you can use it and sneak up on, say, an assault mech that isn't a brawler. You know, if it if you can get the drop on them, you you can kill them easily. Well, even, even if they are brawlers, you can just shut them down. We're all being silly. We have stick stacks now. Everyone, just look up your your most used asset. What's Marauder A, the Magnum Dong. I, I know the, love okay. murdering manlets with it. There, I, I love the, hitting other mechs with it and watching their arms twitch around as they deal with the screen shake. I need to get better with the Magnum. I just put um, I the, only in very specific situations. Stick stats link in um, the uh, uh, Living Legends Discord. I love the Magnum so much. I'll say that, uh, well, I know that, I know that the asset that I've bought more than anyone else and is my most bought asset is the Cauldron Born Delta, um, just because I think it's good for pretty much everything. 
four clan ER smalls, two CLRM 10s, one clan LBX 20, one clan ERPPC. And LBX 20 and CERPPC are my favorite guns in the whole last game. Uh, but that isn't probably like, it's like my favorite asset probably, but my favorite thing to do, like my favorite strategy is like, there, there is nothing more fun to me than getting either a Shadowcat Prime or a Shadowcat Bravo, the Prime being the two clan ER mediums, a Gauss rifle, the Bravo being the LBX 20 SRM 6 one, and just running around and being really, really, really evasive constantly, just showing up, alpha something. So freaking great. Oh, yeah. It's good at every range. But just like kind of the whole feeling of like being able to pop up against pretty much any asset in the game, uh, dump a ton of damage, fade behind cover, pop up from a different direction, and then do a ton of different damage. And then also, if people run up close to you, you still have your improved jump jets for like really, really fun cross ups. It's just such a good asset. And you also never really feel like you're wasting your time by running around because you're so quick. It's not like, like in heavy mechs, like 75 tonners, sometimes you feel like, you know, I shouldn't really be going, like kind of, I shouldn't be going back capping. I shouldn't be going out on weird flanks because I might get caught out. Not so really in a shadow cat. You just kill everything that's like, that's fast enough to deal with you. Uh, even black lanterns, like the Bravo can just mulch everything if you get a close range. And the Prime can kite stuff forever. Looking at my stats, I do have a favorite. After the uh, after the Shimmer D, it's the Loki B is my very favorite mech. Who's on the Bravo? Loki is just it. Not only does it have like a really high mounted Gauss rifle, which lets you basically poke from like ninety percent cover. But the the dual large lasers or large pulse lasers and dual ATM threes that are just reloading constantly. It just it's just great for fighting anything, including BA and aerospace. And you just run around at a high speed and just are constantly shitting out damage and running at very like high heat because I never stop firing the large pulse lasers at anything within line of sight. Yeah, and it's not even that hot. You can basically, well, it has enough dual heat sinks where you can keep doing that. All right, well, who's gone so far? Uh, well, let's accept Architect, I think. Uh, unsurprisingly, my favorite is definitely the Fafnir Alpha with the two improved heavy gauss and the useless machine guns that do nothing but make sound and drive you insane when they're making sound and you lose an arm and it just keeps going. It's good for establishing leads. Yeah. I mean, once you know how your HGOS are going to go, you don't need them. It's very helpful against Zeros. Because once, you, trust. once you know it, you know it. But uh, favorite tactic with that is the generic Fafnir tactic of being the force felt and less seen because that Fafnir is not something you go big unga sub 200 meters with. That's what you want the LBX one for. But that's always fun is just throwing out HGOS. HGOS having no recourse because they turn and they try and throw shots back at you, but you've got the armor to take it. The machine guns on that, um, uh, I think, help with threat assessment so you can figure out who's in what. Wait, what? Yeah, yeah I, I agree. If, if, you, if you have machine guns on an asset, you should always be using them. Um, I, I, have a, a fa- I have an anecdote I, I love to quote. And it was the time that I was dueling Nightmare, who was in a Gauss heavy large laser blood asp. And I was in a um, Krahenjaeger demolisher. 
and we were trading shots on bogs. It was very dark, very low visibility. And um, when we started, I was already shot up pretty well. And um, if he had been using his machine guns to highlight my name as I sat nearly invisible in the water, his accuracy would have been far better and he easily would have killed me, but he was not using his machine guns so he couldn't keep track of where I was, so he was missing half his shots. Occasionally, uh, like what I was saying earlier, uh, for a threat assessment, like if I see th- two Thanatoses coming at me and I uh, and they're like 900 meters away or something, I'll pepper both of them with machine guns, figure out which one of them is the, the bigger threat, and shoot them. Yeah, so I mean, use them as like it, it's free game. damage. Yeah. It also shows where you are. Don't use it. It's a mistake, but... I hear a lot of people say it's great for removing battle armor. Not at all. Oh, yeah, no, it's not. Battle armor with the ghosts and the machine guns. The, the machine guns are only good, really, against battle armor at preventing them from healing. That's about it. Which is helpful. Which is very helpful, honestly. But they're not, they certainly don't kill the battle armor. Unless you have like four. Um. So I. Let's see. For me, um, I play in the Mithras Bravo the most. Uh, the the buy stats say I pick the APC the most, but that's not really what I'm doing. <laughs> uh, yeah, I take the Mithras Bravo because it's got um, two heavy small lasers, one heavy medium laser, um, two uh, high explosive ATM, three launchers, and it has a PDS on top of that that makes it really good. Uh, at defending itself against battle armor. Uh, and so I use that early game to quickly rack up um, enough C bills to buy something better. Uh, that's not really my favorite asset, though. Um, the next thing I buy the most often after that is the Rusalka Echo, which is the LRM Rusalka. It's got two LRM 20s, which, as we've said before, those are staring weapons. They are not. Um, they are certainly not uh, long-range weapons unless somebody's narked uh, some some other target. Um, and then it's got a uh, two laser-guided bomb launchers with an extra what five five tons? Yeah, five tons for ammo, which I usually buy four tons of um, laser-guided bombs with that. And since with laser-guided bombs, you know, you get up to speed like is uh, you know four hundred kilometers an hour, drop the bomb, cut your engines guide the bomb down, and then launch your LRMs, you're having to guide that bomb for so long that the LRMs being a staring weapon isn't really a problem. Then once you get a little bit closer, um, you've got your um, Air Rack 5, which has pretty decent range. I think it's like almost 800 meters of range uh, for Air Rack 5s. And so that uh, that's another stare weapon. So this whole thing is just built around staring at your target. And then you get in just a little bit more uh a little closer than that, and you can use your uh, two medium lasers that are on it. Uh, although it gets kind of hot <laughs> launching those bombs, the LRMs, and then uh, continually going down with that Rack 5, uh, right. I often find that I have to uh, vent some coolant if I'm going to be using the medium lasers too. And now that Rusalka is worth uh, one more ticket when it dies because it's good. And so I'm uh that one specifically no, chassis. All of them. Toll chassis. Okay. Yeah, the um I would probably fly like uh MRM Rosalka if I wasn't 
uh, so intent on taking one that had laser guided bombs. And so Murmurus is always amazing. Yeah. Did anybody else not get a chance to describe their favorite asset? Everybody did? Okay, cool. Yep. All right, well, this has been Returning to Base, a MechWarrior Living Legends podcast. And a special thank you goes out to Timothy Seals for our intro music and Shivoxi for our outro music. I hope you'll listen again next time. <laughs>